Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. With the NFL season a week away and the Ringer's fantasy football coverage gearing up, we have released our first ever Fantasy Football Hall of Fame. We assembled a panel of voters, including Bill Simmons, Cousin Sal, Robert Mays, Mallory Rubin, and more, to induct the 25 best fantasy football players of all time. You can find the rankings by going directly to fantasyfootball.theringer.com. And for more fantasy football coverage, check out the Fantasy Football Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Big shout out to Yola Tango, as always, for the wonderful intro music. This week, we have my good friend, screenwriter, director, producer, Brian Kopelman. He also has an awesome podcast called The Moment with Brian Kopelman. Uh, he's made some of the best films that I enjoy. Rounders, Knockaround Guys, Runaway Jury, Michael Clayton, Ocean's 13, and... Most recently, he's been dedicating most of his efforts to the great TV show, Billions, which the fifth season is in production or being filmed right now. And as always, it's not just entertaining, it's educational, but I think Brian really has a, an understanding of human interaction. I know that sounds sort of trite, but it's, it's something that he has a wicked sense of in terms of the many different kinds of... Uh, like the shades of gray in individuals. And man, like I grew up sort of watching his stuff and I don't know how many times I've seen the movie rounders and we'll go into that in a second. Uh, I wanted to get into a quick, my opinion as fact. And this week's, my opinion of fact is a little bit more of a travel guide. And there's two places that I've been thinking about quite a bit because I want to visit them again. Um, actually, let's just say it's three. I, I was on a quick layover in Austin recently and, um, for a variety of reasons, my friend and I just decided to, to make a day out of it and push our flight connecting flight the next day and, uh, eat some barbecue and then check out Suerte. So, in Austin, we were there during the annual closure for Franklin's Barbecue, and we wanted to check out Smitty's. I, I've been to Lockhart, I've been to Kreutz's, I've been to Black's, um, but I never made it to Smitty's. And man, what a cool place. I was just shocked at uh, at how it was operated and the just the beauty of the whole operation. And right when you walk in, I wasn't prepared to have fire right at the corridor, right? They're, they're burning their wood for their barbecue right there. I like literally almost fell into the, the fire pit, but we got there at nine in the morning and uh, had a, a just an ungodly amount of food and the pork ribs, the brisket, turkey, everything was just amazing because it just came right out of the smokers. What I love most again is the style of service. Pay for the pound, you order your meats, then you go sit down and you get your drinks and your sort of condiments, the, the macaroni and cheese, the coleslaw. They even sell wedges, small and large wedges of cheddar cheese and the Topo Chico. I just really think that this is a kind of dining that we need more of, that sense of community, the sense of celebration. And it's really stripped away from all the bullshit that sort of restaurants have gravitated to the past 30 years or so. And I just think it's as American as anything America's ever produced baseball, apple pie, jazz, and barbecue, particularly Texas barbecue, all American barbecue is, is just tremendous. But Smitty's was very unique. 
We also dined later that night at Suerte. I'm cutting out some of the other amazing barbecue we, we had. Uh, we went to a place in Georgetown, but they were closed. And uh, Suerte was on the best of list of just about a lot of magazines and publications. And I always want to take that with a grain of salt because I always find these best of lists are oftentimes like, I think more or less correct, but they're just sending one person out there. And it's hard to sort of aggregate that information. But one of the restaurants that I feel like everyone nailed was Suerte. And I had, you know, chef just crushed us. And uh, the hospitality was just over the top and really kudos to that entire team there because they're doing a restaurant that is really personal to them and incredibly delicious and seasonal. And that masa, wow. I mean, like that's the kind of restaurant you want to come back multiple times and bring six to eight people because you want to order that entire menu. And uh, I thought the desserts, he, he made um, sort of this ice cream sandwich, uh, like a masa ice cream sandwich. I'm not even remember exactly. I didn't take any photos. I just thought it was just fun and delicious. And it's cool to see Austin continue to develop as a town in a variety of ways. And it's not just barbecue. The other restaurant that I wanted to recommend was called Kish Cash. And it's a new concept by celebrated chef, restaurateur, Inet Admoni. Forgive me if I butchered that name, but it's her casual sort of homage to couscous. And to get that kind of food at that kind of sort of service level at that kind of price point, uh, man, I, I wish I was uh, in that neighborhood a little bit more because I'd eat there all the time. It was delicious. I only got the chicken tagine. It was tremendous. And it's, you know, I'm just glad that kind of restaurant can exist. And that homemade couscous is just delicious. And it's a kind of food that I'd like to eat more of and learn more about. And the fact that it's in New York in the West Village is amazing. And again, like, I don't know how many people are doing, going there. I, I haven't, I just sort of stumbled upon it. So when I went to Kish Cash, I just thought, I can't imagine like that kind of restaurant existing 10 years ago. And I think that's the best part about living in America or New York is having the opportunity to go down these rabbit holes and to really eat something that I think a lot of Americans have a misunderstanding of what couscous could be and wanted to shout out to Kish Cash as well. So um, those three restaurants in Austin, Smitty's and Suerte and Kish Cash, I know they're well known, not that they need more of a shout out, but there are three restaurants that I think that you should go check out. Um, all right. I will shut the fuck up and get into this week's podcast with Brian Coleman. Enjoy. This is weird because I've been on your podcast. You've been doing this forever. Yeah, you're great at this though, man. Come on. You're so good at it. You're born. I mean, you're so, you're by your nature, you're so inquisitive and you're so trying to find, separate the bullshit from the truth. I mean, in your whole, in your whole life, you've kind of built everything on being able to discover what is the legitimate thing inside just a, a fucking universe of bullshit. Well, I appreciate it. And, I think there's an interesting tidbit that I don't tell that many people. I think I talked about it on, on your podcast, but there are a few people that were instrumental in the success of Momofuku in 2004. And it wasn't necessarily you yourself who visited us many, many times. It was who you told. Yes. And very early on, we had the support of Martha Stewart. 
Yeah, I told, I called her because I didn't know her well, but I, I mean, you know the thing. I mean, obviously, you and I have kind of known each other since then. When I went into Mofuku Noodle Bar the first time, the original, it was a completely mind blowing experience. And what people now, you know, you're so famous, dude, and your restaurants, people come in with an expectation, which has its own. I've heard you talk about this, and we've talked about it what these expectations do, both to you who want to live up to it, but also to the people coming in. The first time I went was three months after you opened. Nobody had any expectations. A smart friend of mine was like, there's this place. All the chefs like to go there late at night. So we went there late at night. And for the record, that person was not Jonathan Prince. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was not. Blood, um, blood raging right now if he's hearing If he's this. listening, he'll listen <laughs> when he sees me on the pod. That's a, a close mutual friend who argues about who went first to Noodle Bar. But so I was so blown away, you know, um, it's rather you're in a position to experience something as it's about to change an aspect of the world, right? People are hyperbolic and they like to say things like uh, the world shifted. I like to say that too. The culinary world shifted because of what you did that year. You know, you've done a lot of amazing things since, but that year you changed the meaning of fine dining in New York. You changed the meaning of serious food, of you decided that your North Star was going to be deliciousness. You were going to present this in your obsessive, insane way. And then you couldn't know whether people were going to notice. But somewhere along there, very early on, discerning people noticed. And I remember biting into the pork bun. And I remember the summer when you put the corn on the menu, the corn with- Miso and bacon. And bacon. And I ate those things. And it was, maybe I was just perfectly positioned in where I was in life. I was ready to receive it. And I'll say that's one of the things that I've been like, you know, all of us have things about ourselves we like and don't like. But something I like about myself is I am open to experience greatness. I've always been. I'm an enthusiast. And I get weird because you're very enthusiastic about what we've done. And it always is like very strange to me that you like it as much as you did. But I'm really grateful for your support because honestly, when you love something, you tell everyone you know. I do. And it's, fuck, beginning, what, 16 plus years later of Momofuku Noodle Bar, the first six months were very dire. Yeah. And we were going out of business. And again, this seems like a a Disney made-for-movie TV special, but it wasn't. We were not doing well. Yeah, which is crazy to me. So yes, because you could go there and get in. Like you go sit right at that bar and get the stuff. So I told, my dad was working with Martha, so I knew Martha a little bit. I was so freaked out by how amazing it was that I told her, I was like, you have to go to this place. It's weird. It's small. It's not the kind of place you normally go to. And then she went and she, to her credit, like she totally got it. Which was and to so your credit, crazy. And then she put you on the show. Yeah. And I didn't know what to do. And I didn't find this out till much later, right? Like, like your dad came in the restaurant and he's this serious executive. Yeah. And I heard... I was like downstairs prepping or something. And then someone comes up and he's like, hey, Martha Stewart's in line. I was like, what? That's awesome. What the fuck? Do you cut her? Do do you like put her? I was like, I don't know. Like, what do you, what do we do? Do we like put her at the front of the line? And I just made the calls like, we're just going to make her wait in line like everyone else. And I think she fucking loved the fact that she was treated like everyone else. Oh, that's so funny. And that's great. Getting on that show and Martha, the support of Martha Stewart, I think was, there was probably a handful of things that were instrumental to our survival at first. And that was, and that one, was of one of them. No, and- that always has made me feel good because it is true what you said. When, when, I mean, I think it's important to say over these years, as you and I became real friends, 
I've told you when stuff doesn't work too. Yeah. I mean, I'll say, hey, this dish doesn't work because you'll ask me and you'll want the truth. And because you know I'm coming from a place of loving it, right. I'll tell you what's real. And But when you find something that's so great, that's so different, uh, when I do, my whole life, you're right, I want to share that because it's so easy to tear stuff down. Most of the world now, especially on social media, everywhere else, is about what can I rip apart? What can I punch a hole in? What can I deflate? When did you become so positive? You're like one of the most positive. But it's you're not Mr. I'm positive all the time. You are racked with agony and pain yes. simultaneously. But for the most part, if I have to think about Brian, Brian is someone that wants to celebrate the good things, is trying his best to be in a positive place. Yeah. Well, because you have this, this choice. If you're a writer, you notice everything. You're a little bit of an outsider, right? So yeah, I could go through life. I believe me, I notice every single I notice all the frailties, I notice all of the ways in which all of us are not living up to who we could be. But I would like to escape from that reality as much as I can. And so, if I hear a great record or I watch a great movie or I eat in an amazing place, I will celebrate it. It's also simple. Uh let's say however many meals you eat in a week, the ones that suck, which is most of them, I just am not going to talk about. Now, by the way, you and I went to a shitty restaurant together a little while ago. We happened to be there. I told you it was <laughs> shitty. The next day, we cackled about it. And we cackled about it because that place was getting praised by some ridiculous people. And you and I both saw where it fell short. But I don't need to do that in public. I don't need to add. To, I, I figure the person running that restaurant knows they're having a problem. I don't need to add to their trauma publicly. Well, then how do you feel about this? Because I want to get into your career, all these things, because your life is extraordinary. But talking about criticism, because you've created a lot of things. Yeah. Or been part of things like in music. But for the most part, the past 20 plus years has been in TV and film. Do you feel that in today's era, 2019 going to 2020, we need critics? Right? Because if things are good, people fucking know about them now. Because people like you tell people... And it gets magnified at such a rapid rate beforehand, before social media. We didn't have that. We needed to be told, where do you think someone is? Because someone was doing the work. We needed curation. But journalists and critics, to me, it's not their fault. How do they do the work anymore? Because it's impossible to do the work like you used to do. It's discovering. I understand this point of view. I think criticism has had to change. And like I found your relationship with Wells fascinating Mm. because there was that I mean, he wrote that bad review. There was a New York article where you guys took shots at each other. But then I thought, what one would have thought in the past is then that that state of play, restaurateur, artist, thinks critic is a joke. Critic has decided that he's just going to fucking hate restaurateur forever. Like you would have thought that would have held. But because the world is different now, I think partially, and actually because I think Pete really tries hard, he wrote three or four amazing pieces about you and your restaurants. After he destroyed us. Yeah, but yeah. yes, but I don't think that's the case in the old days. And that's a surprise for sure. Right. He was willing to say, and, and by the way, after you called him out, basically, instead of retrenching into a posture of hatred, I thought there was an openness where he was like, well, I'm going to take each of these restaurants. And then I thought the article that he wrote about you developing chefs was a real sort of sign of about almost like a a path toward what criticism could become because he did sort of, you're right, the internet now gives you 
Twitter and especially, I guess, Insta for food, gives you these kind of snapshot things. But when I watch, and I, I really like Andrew, who started the infatuation a lot. And I think the infatuation is really useful for what it does. But when I look at one of those Instagram infatuation restaurant reviews, I don't want that to stand in for somebody serious evaluating a restaurant. I don't, I want great television critics. I do want there to be some people, Emily Nussbaum, who understand what the artist is trying to do. So I agree with you. The, the, the world now makes it easy for people to say, hey, that place was good. That place sucked. Get the macaroni and cheese. Don't eat the short rib. But for someone to give some context to mm. it, for those who are fanatics, so for a writer to watch our show and understand the tradition it comes from, where it's pointing, why we're doing what we're doing, I think there is a purpose for that because I don't think you just want the infatuation review, uh, you know, the infatuation Insta story, five minute sort of take on one night in your joint to be what stands for But you can't do that with your shows or your movies that you've created. You can, but if you are a TV critic and you haven't sort of grown up and changed how you write criticism or music or literature you're going to be laughed out of your profession because everyone can read the same thing or watch the same thing. And food is still this weird thing because also no one ever really cared about it up until very recently. I don't think it's the critics' fault that they haven't sort of evolved quicker because they, no one had a reason. But now we're in a place where it better happen fucking fast. Well, yeah, look, <laughs> the obsolescence of all forms of print media and the things that have come out of print media, right? There were these traditions. You had a daily paper, you had to make it interesting. So you're a food critic, had to be better than the food critic at the paper across the street. Now there is no paper across the street. It's all shifted. But on the other hand, critics gave you hate fuel, which served you very well. There's right? a great line in Billions that is basically a paraphrase of whatever I say all the time. <laughs> yeah, about how hate is the best fuel. Well, yeah. I mean, look, while we're here, yeah, you're definitely one of the inspirations for Axe. I mean, there's no question that the time that we spent with, that I've spent with you over my life and that there's some of you, some of what the churn in you to be the best at this you can be is in Bobby Axelrod. No doubt about it. You recognized it right away. You know? It's so weird. And if people hear this, I'm like, oh no, maybe we have to edit that out. (laughs) It's so weird to hear that. But you know that there's some, I mean, it's something you know, like that idea of hate as fuel. I mean, you're not him. You, you're not a criminal in any way. And he does some criminal things sometimes. But the, the idea that every slight, everyone who doesn't believe in you, everyone who doubted you or excluded you or, you know, yelled at you for the implements you were using in their kitchen, all those people became for you. Yes. People, they were the ideas that had to be thwarted, right? Which they is turned why sometimes into, it's hard for me to watch Billions because, like, I don't want to be this this dude, right? Right? You know, it's like sometimes, like last scene, I was like, "Fuck, this is so hard." <laughs> oh, the echoes of like, yeah, yeah you mean because Taylor, right? Right? You've had that thing of like a yeah. chef that you put everything into, and then they leave. But I've gotten older, and with age comes like I can't make this same decision over and over the same, and I have to grow up for me to. To get to the next level of success, I can't be me. We all have to grow. I mean, I've been, yeah, we talked about this a couple of years ago. At some point, and part of it is when, you know, now you have Hugo in the world, which is, uh, changes everything. Well, it just you know. changes everything. Yeah. And, and suddenly you realize, well, 
I can't give in. To, all of us realize this. Me, I mean, I, as positive I am, you get to a point where it's like almost everybody who becomes successful in something like restaurants or movies or TV as an artist partially have been fueled by rejection and anger. I'm no different, right? All the people who now, I mean, a guy linked in me yesterday who was just for four years of college, a total douche to me. And he wrote me on LinkedIn like, wow, I'm glad everything's going so well. Some, he saw me some, you know, in some article. And um, that guy's definitely been in my head when I did something that was good. But now I have to have gotten to a place, and it happened for me before you because my kids are much older, where I have to get to a place where it's like, that can't be the fuel anymore. The fuel has to be about putting something good in the world. The fuel has to be about becoming just the best version of myself that I can be. So that when I get that LinkedIn message, my answer, even if my initial instinct is, fuck you. In fact, I have to take that one extra beat to go, nope, that person's evolved. That person, that's their way of saying, I misjudged you. So instead of me thinking, well, that's them being a heat-seeking missile, I have to go, that's them saying, I misjudged you. And now it's up to me to either say, hey, good to hear from you, and putting that whole thing to bed. Or like when I was younger, I would have had a lot of fun with it, right? I would have said something obnoxious back. I would have, But all that does is keep that anger going, keeps that agita going. And I don't want to live from that place anymore. But that's a hard bit of growth, man. I'm 53. I'm really different than I was at 40. I'm really different than I was at 35, as you are. Mm. We all have to evolve. Look, Bobby Axelrod tried really hard to evolve. It, you know, but sometimes if you don't do the work, you get pulled back to this foundational place. As, by the way, as either of us can in our worst moments. What we're talking about is trying not to give in to our worst instincts and right. impulses, right? So I think that's important. I would say, as a last way of re revisiting your initial question, because I can see all of the flaws and everything, when I find something great, it makes me so happy because I can picture what it, I'll say, I immediately can picture what it took to produce that. And that's part of why I want to celebrate it. It's like, I want everyone to look what's possible. Like, I love that idea. And it can be as simple as a burger that I taste or as complicated as Miles Davis's Bitches Brew. Like, if I can feel that somebody pushed themselves to the very brink of who they are to create something magical, it kind of, because I'm not a religious person, I'm an atheist, it's kind of what gives me faith in the world, is that we have the capacity as human beings to create, like, magic. For example, you know, and this happens, and I'm always thankful that you do these things. Because I had been busy and I'd been trying to watch it, but I didn't get a chance. Was the new was it a mockumentary? The documentary of Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder review. Yes. And Brian texts me, he's like, You have to watch this. And I'm like, I know, I just haven't had the chance. And when I watched it, I was like, Of course, this is why he sends it to me. Because it's the most fucking brilliant thing I've seen in ages. It was unbelievable. Well, yeah. And I knew you would protect, I just knew you would get off on it. I was just sure you would get the whole thing. And the other thing is, and this is, you know, as you get to be older, I was watching comedians talk about this, right? You would think there's more and more people, and because of social media, we have these audiences of people that we deal with and, and interact with. And I love that. I love Twitter. It's, I love interacting on Twitter. But one of the things is, like, if you and I met when we were in our 20s, we would have just hung out all the time. But like, we're, we have lives. So we can't hang out all the time. But one of the ways you can touch, have a touch with your friends and, re and connect is over this stuff. So like, when you then 
texted me back a day later and like, holy shit, I completely get this. What a genius. Now it's just an additional thing that ties us together, right? So, But someone that is an auteur like yourself and you make film, like what happens if, let's just say, a said critic doesn't even understand what happened in the Scorsese doc? They're just like, I don't get it. Well, yes, it gets you crazy when people, well, with that one where I don't want to, look, that thing's been out for a month now. I'm going to spoil something in it. So five, four, three, two, one. Now I'm going to spoil something. So there's a bunch of bullshit in that thing on purpose because it's about exploding the myth of the genius. And it's about how we mythologize ourselves and how we mythologize these legends. So there are a few totally fictional moments weaved in. And some critics, I saw that some critics were annoyed by that or didn't get it. And yeah, it makes you it makes me furious when people don't get it. About my own work, don't you think you usually know when your place is really good or not? Like, so for me, it was really frustrating. My so our first movie was Rounders. The first two reviews of Rounders. By the way, don't you love I love that Rounders is on TV all the time. It's great. And people, I never not watch it. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, people constantly hit me up when it's on. But like, you know, the first two reviews came out a week in advance, and this is when Time and Newsweek were the only magazines that mattered. The Time and Newsweek reviews landed a week before the movie was out and a week before any other reviews. They were both negative and they both singled out Dave and me, Dave Levine, who's my creative partner. So they singled out the two of us and that the movie sucked and our script sucked. And when I read those reviews, they hit the same day. I remember basically going into a fetal position and basically feeling like, well, I thought I was going to have a career at this and now I'm not going to. It made me very sad. But then I woke up the next morning and I realized I could write. These critics couldn't stop me from doing what I wanted to do. They couldn't stop me from doing what I had fought to become a person who could do. And I got up the next day and started doing my work. And then a bunch of good reviews came in. And I realized I'm never going to let a critic affect my emotional state. Something about, you said Rounders is always on television, right? That movie came out 22 years ago. It wasn't a hit movie when it came out. But there's something that David and I and John Dahl and Matt and Edward and Malkovich and Turturro, there's something that we all intended to do, it mattered to us in a certain way that all these years later, when it shows up on television, it demands your attention. And, and I think it demands your attention because of our intention. We were ruthless with ourselves to make exactly the movie we wanted to see. Doesn't mean it was going to be a commercial movie. Doesn't mean it was going to be popular. Doesn't mean we were going to pander. It means we were going to try our best to put for Dave and me, our entire friendship, our entire lives, everything that mattered to us about friendship and loyalty and what risks are worth taking and what dreams are worth chasing and what the cost of chasing those dreams. We were 29 years old and we were going to put everything that we knew into that. And it's the same thing with the show now with Billions and part of why it resonates is if you know us, you see us in every fucking line, in every frame of the show. And I feel that way when I eat in one of your restaurants and it's working, it's because even though you've put that through these chefs and you've empowered them, I feel what matters to you in every bite of food that I take. And that's what separates. I'll say the older I get, the less time I have for mediocrity, the less time I have for people who aren't willing to risk failing on that level, right? It's like, I don't even want to go into your restaurant if I don't think you're killing yourself to produce something magical. I don't want to listen to your record if I don't think you killed yourself to make the record. Uh, young folks, that's a uh, music. Records. <laughs> uh, but you, you know what I mean? I don't want to. And, and so when I see the Phantom Thread by Paul Thomas Anderson, 
I see somebody who's turned himself absolutely inside out to put something almost indecipherable on screen. But in every frame, I feel the passion and commitment. It makes me lean all the way in to try to understand it. I don't know. Those are the things that make, otherwise just spend all your time with your family because there's nothing more important than that. If you're going to do something other than that, it's got to matter, man. And that's what I'm looking for. So the answer to your question, that is, I'm constantly walking around this earth looking for what matters and looking for why it matters to people. And when I find something that matters, I want to be someone who goes like, look over there. You got to go see this thing because I don't want it to disappear unrecognized. I want people to know. I don't want people to see what's possible. Maybe it'll inspire them to figure out how to get the best out of themselves. And maybe then they won't be in a state of constant misery. That's beautiful, man. Let's do- We're done. Okay, great. We're, we're done. done. <laughs> Fuck. That was awesome. I'm not, what, what are we, how do we top that? Fucking asshole. <laughs> I mean, you asked me a good question. Give me a very short episode. We can have a bowl of rice and be done. That's fine. Oh, man. I mean, Rounders to me is a perfect example. There's so many things that happen in culture that people may not get. And it does determine the fate of that artist or that craftsman in so many ways. And that's what bothers me. Here's what I've always wondered. Yes, of course that bothers you. But Liz, what I want to ask you, the flip side of it. Can you walk through your restaurants? Can you tell when someone gets it? By the way, when they talk to you, does it matter to you? Like, I'm sure at the noodle bar, you were able to tell. Because I could see reactions. You could see their faces. Again, like I've talked about this. I don't miss it because I stumped. There's so many things that happen every day. Yesterday, there's an example like, a chef at one of our restaurants. I want to say which one because he'll be so mad at me. Um, this dish that he put on, I just was like, this is good for some people. Wait, wait, who'd you say that to? Did you say that out loud? No, yeah, to him. I was like, this so is he good. shows you this dish. No, or he's on eating, the I, menu. Ordered, I ordered it and it was, I'm trying hard to edit out in my head things that will incriminate this person. Come on, give it a little shape. Come on, give us a little shape. It was so a rice bowl with fish in it. Okay. And I said, what the fuck is this? Poke? No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh. I, I didn't say it like that. Actually, I didn't say it like that. I said very calm. That's what was in my fucking head. Right. And I'm trying so hard to right. communicate. But I was so mad that I'm eating this thing. And I was trying to explain to them that there are low-hanging fruits that are really ripe and juicy, but we've decided not to pluck them. Yes. Okay. Oh, like yes. They're there for they're there for other dummies to go after. Yes. But they're higher, more beautiful, more delicious things that are harder to reach. And that's the shit we're after. Right? No, that's what you have to say though. I'd say it differently. Like your restaurants have to be somebody's favorite restaurant. Otherwise it's not worth it to you. It has to be somebody's favorite place to go and there has to be a dish on there that's their favorite dish in the world. Good doesn't get anyone out of their house. You can get good delivered to you in every form of entertainment. Good just shows up. Great, rarefied, unusual, special. Those things are always going to be in short supply and that's what you have to deliver and that's what I got to fucking try to deliver, man, is like, I got to try to deliver something. Many people might not like it, but there have to be enough people who are obsessed enough that they're going to watch my show each episode three times and find something new in it. And guys, are, people are starting websites where they catch every reference in the show and they 
It's a whole cottage industry. It is, where people are like freaking out. But you have to do something that's so strange, so different, so canted, that it's not a version of poke. It's something that they can't access anywhere else. It has to be that specific, that different, that special. And the problem is, to do that, you have to turn yourself inside out, Dave, right? You have to be willing... You have to be willing to be miserable because, until you get there. I was talking about this a little before we started, which is I'm four weeks into the writer's room and already, and this happens every year, it's you can see where you could settle and it'll be fine, but you can't. Problem is, you know it. And, and you know, I do a bunch of shit so, to like keep myself honest. I, I journal every morning. I meditate twice a day. I do cardio in a way that makes me sort of get back into my head and if you do things like that, and I have a creative partner who's rigorous as a motherfucker, Dave, about all this stuff too, we look at each other and we're like, we're not going to fake the funk. Like we can't, like, like we have to go back to everybody and say, well, we don't have it yet. We're not there. We're not at the truest place of what this is. We haven't uncovered the next story and you get successful and you get people telling you you're great all day long. And you have to remind yourself that those things don't matter at all. All that matters is your own sense of what is legitimate, mm. what is worthy. And it's fucking brutal, right? Because <laughs> so hard. And that's why I just stopped listening to compliments. Right. And I, I mean, early on going back to the old noodle bar, and this is another reason why I think whenever I talk to, and now I know screenwriters and there's so much similarity. It's insane. But I, early on realized that compliments because I do it all the time to people. It's like, oh yeah, that was a great comedy act, man. It was great. It wasn't that funny, but I don't know what else to say, so it's good. Yes. Good, well, good is different than than like amazing, life-changing. Also, I'd say once something's finished, it's weird in your business too. So Mike Probigley and I were just talking about this. If something's finished, I only want to hear it's good. I, like, I only want to hear a compliment once it's finished because I can't I can't do anything about it, right? <laughs> Once it's done, but I show stuff to my friends early stages, to other artists early stages so that I can get brutal commentary to make it better. Always do that. Um, but in your game, it's never finished. That's what's so stupid it's about it. It's never done. So dumb. In your game, like a friend of mine who was very hip to all this and I were talking today and he, he was like, it was Adam. And Adam's like, where do you see the rest because you know i was coming here it's like where do you see the restaurants landing right now i'm like what do you mean he's like well which is the best and which isn't and then we had a 10 minute conversation about that that's the life you gotta live is like <laughs> i'm only talking about momofuku restaurants that's what i'm saying he's like and and about one of them he was like i i'm not sure that they're in as good a groove as they were a year ago and about another he was like well that one's firing on all cylinders right now and if i'm you knowing that trying to keep my hand and all that it must be it must tear you apart still i'm looking at it like a, a football career or something like this. You're going to have peaks and valleys and I just got to step away. You mean you don't allow your, do you still eat in all of them no, every I, month? I know what's going on. And sometimes I don't have a complete idea of what's going on, but now I'm, I just feel like I'm turning into such a, it's almost like that scene. This is what I explained to my team that are much younger than me. And they definitely think I'm insane before, but they are now like, you're out of your mind. Yeah. There's a scene in Blade Runner where, <clears throat> the first Blade Runner, where Harrison Ford continues to go back to the photo, looking at it for any clues. And then he keeps on going back and back and back until he figures out, oh, it's someone in a bathtub. And that's how I feel about the restaurants is that 
I look now for just a, an emotional response. Yes. Like I was like the other day I was at a restaurant and I, saw, I was talking to a manager and I, I normally I see the, the sense of like vibrance in her voice. And then I was like, I saw that she wasn't happy. She gave me a fake smile. It was a smile, but it was sorrow smile. Uh. And I was like, something's not right here. What's going on? And that's, that caused me to be like, oh, I got to be fucking Sherlock Holmes right now. Something's off. Did you figure it out? Yeah, we figured it out. But that's what's weird now is like, how the fuck did I recognize that? It's so hard to do, man. Before we go on, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Masterclass. Whatever you're passionately curious about, you can keep digging in and learning more with a master of the field when you sign up for Masterclass. I actually signed up for Masterclass because I wanted to study what Aaron Franklin did with his barbecue classes. He's one of the great chefs of the world, and the fact that I can get one-to-one teaching on one of the greatest chefs America's ever produced, and I really believe that, is sort of priceless. Anything I can do to make better barbecue is worth the price of admission. So Masterclass offers exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft. Learning cooking from Gordon Ramsay, Wolfgang Puck, other chefs like Thomas Keller, and tons more, amongst all the other professions and crafts, it's amazing. Masterclass offers classes on everything from the art of photography to basketball to French pastry fundamentals. There are over 60 classes and new ones are added all the time. Lessons are about 10 to 15 minutes long and you can explore them in whatever order you'd like on your phone, tablet, Apple TV, and computer. Master Class offers a 30-day money-back guarantee when you sign up for annual membership so you've got nothing to lose. Now, you can have the unlimited access to every Master Class and as a Dave Chang Show listener, you can get $30 off. Just go to masterclass.com slash Chang for $30 off your first year of the all-access pass. It's a really great deal considering that, you know, I've been telling people on this podcast to broaden their range to learn other things other than just cooking and the cooking classes alone are fantastic that's masterclass.com slash chang for unlimited access to masterclass at $30 off masterclass.com slash chang today's show is also brought to you by yahoo fantasy football we've all made some bad choices in life i know i have like opening up momofuku sambar in 2006 and starting off as a burrito korean joint Made sense to me, but obviously was sort of a bad mistake, not sort of something I still think about. But this isn't about me, it's about you. Don't make where you play fantasy football a bad life decision. Play Yahoo Fantasy Football. Yahoo offers up free expert advice. It has the best player experience and they'll never delete your league history like other apps. Yahoo also has all kinds of fantasy games like the new Best Ball. Just draft and you're done. No trades, no waivers, no drama all season. Yahoo is the number one rated app by the FSGA. Make better choices, choose Yahoo Fantasy Football. It's my fantasy football league of choice. And now, back to the show. Is it hard for you to force yourself to not detach because you're still so focused, but to to allow it, this process to breathe, as you were just saying, to take this sort of football season approach? Um. I've been really preparing to be a dad for a long time. And, and I've said this before, I, I've been every kind of bad boss, which I now equate to being a good parent. And I think being a good parent ultimately is being present. And being present means not, not being there and not being there so much that you're making all the decisions. It's, 
having an understanding of that paradox, the contradiction of being there and knowing when to enter the situation in the fray and when not to. And it's maybe not too much and maybe not enough. It's fucking impossible to know when Hugo starts to walk and he's going to, it's going to kill me. Cause anytime he hurts himself, it just is like, Oh, it's the worst. The worst. better when he's going to, when he's able to talk to you about it, it's going to, it's so much better when he can express to you what hurts. It's so much better. I see the pain that's about to happen. Uh-huh. And I just am like, I also understand why a parent would decide to help them out every step of the way. I don't blame them, but the worst thing you can do is to make sure that they don't feel any pain. You have to let them grow. Yes. I mean, this is, so what I have a lot of conversations. What I'm learning right now, and this is a conversation I had with Tony Kim earlier this morning with Marguerite, who thank God is running the company way better than me, is we have to find, and I told Tony there were certain problems that I was seeing, and I told him I knew that there were going to be problems. And I knew that if I answered them and fixed them, they were just going to rear its ugly head in other ways. So I let them fester. And it was like knowing the answer to something and not answering it, it's fucking impossible. So being present is letting it germinate and then grow. And then so everyone can see it. That's the hardest fucking but thing. But that means that sometimes you're going to have to deal with the fact that you know someone's going to someone's going to have a meal tonight that isn't going to blow their mind. And that must drive you fucking insane. It, it, it 100% does. Because it would drive me crazy. It drives me fucking insane. So I literally just try to turn it off. And one of the ways that I, I'm able to do that is I have so many other fucking projects. Right. <laughs> so I right. can't do it anymore. Yes. I'm like, oh. I want it, but I got to do this, this, and this, so I have to prioritize. So and every- now I realize I have to go into one of Tony's <laughs> restaurants and make him feel good because I love that guy. No, it was and all good. I try to go, and he's so good at what he does. He's brilliant so at it. This, this conversation actually was a very, it was all very constructive and positive. But I said, you know what, guys? This is a sign of how good we're operating. Right. We're not even talking about problems that have actually happened yet. Are you good at telling, did you invent the um, cold fried chicken or did someone else invent it? That was Sean Gray. So are you able, when you taste something like that, when he really gets it right, because I, you know, Christina tells that story about you figuring out that when she showed you the cornflake ice cream, you know, you immediately said to her, you did it. Like you freaked out. Yeah. She tells that story. I love that story. But when you taste that cold fried chicken the triple batter or mm. whatever the thing is. Were you, are you able to celebrate that for them as much as you're able to criticize? Are you getting better at going like, hey, Sean, you fucking nailed it? Well, yeah, I think I've always been good like that. It's just that they're rare. They're rare. <laughs> you know, but like when it happens, like I'm always looking for something that just fundamentally moves me. Yes, right. right? Yeah. And I love being wrong. I don't know if that makes sense to people. It's like, oh, I always love getting mad at myself because like, oh, I had a preconceived notion that it was going to be like this. And now, because I tasted something or I listened to something or read something, I was totally wrong. It's the best feeling. That is the best. That's what Mark Andreessen, who I think is the smartest guy, what he says is uh, the goal is to have strong opinions lightly held. Strong opinions lightly held so that you are willing to change your mind instantly when you get new information. So when when Sean I, I gave t- you that I, chicken, what'd you I do? I came back because we, I was in LA with Major Domo and I, here's how good our team is right now. And I'm not even going to say knock on wood anymore because like there's been a lot of fucking work and we have right. so many talented people and, and we got to find ways to always grow. But when I, that opened up and I was still open to Major Domo and I came back to taste it, I was like, fuck. This is, you this, did. You said great like this. You and did that, it. And that's what I'm always looking for is like, 
I can tell immediately they put in the fucking work. You can see it. Is opening Co the last, like when you open Co, so you, you did Noodle and Psalm, and like everyone knows the Psalm story and how hard it was. You haven't talked a lot about how this crazy thing you did with Co, which was, you know, you basically started the new tasting menus. You combined ingredients in a way that hadn't been done before. You did that reservation system. In the beginning, you, your friends didn't get in. or Like, you, you really did this thing. Have you taken a risk that big since, do you think? I thought the two of them were Nishi and Major Domo. Those, you feel like those are as big risks as... Major as, Domo was the As biggest, the original cut. As big as... That was career-defining. Because going out there and... If that failed, I really still feel if that failed, we're done. Right. You have to tell yourself No, that. no, I tell. I really believe that, though. And I still believe that. And that's how I almost like Stockholm syndrome myself, you know? Oh, but this is good for creative. Okay. This is really good for creative people. Nishi. Let's just talk about Nishi for one second because I went the other night and it was so good. And the redesign, can you just talk a little bit about what made you willing? I'll tell you very clearly. I'm never going to let anyone else fucking determine my fate. Not a fucking chance in hell. I'd rather burn in fucking hell. And be in eternal agony than have some motherfucker <laughs> tell me how my life is going to be determined. Yes. No fucking chance in hell. And I will fucking quadruple down every fucking time I need to so they eat fucking shit. That's just the way I see it. Like what I think is interesting about Nishi is you threw out most of that criticism. The cacio is still the center of the menu. The cacio is one of the best dishes in New York. You made other changes to make the experience of eating that more pleasurable for people. <laughs> Nishi wound up being the best thing for us, ultimately. For me and my career and the whole company, as painful as it was, because we had to change a lot of things. And I'm still unpacking a lot of it. But honestly, if Nishi doesn't happen, then Major Domo doesn't happen. And I realized that my ideas, while they might be right, they needed to be presented in a better way. And I ate so much fucking shit that I was like, okay, this is what I need to do. I felt like fucking Shawshank. If this is what I need to do to get to the other side, then that's what I'll fucking do. And I just realized when I was telling you why I would never let Nishi fail, I sound exactly like Bobby Axelrod. And I want to punch myself in the face. But <laughs> um, I'm thankful because I took a lot of those ideas, basically all the ideas of Nishi, and I made Major Domo happen. Right. And I just made the, it was almost like making a new like fashion line or something like, and I just had to change the stitching. And that's how it felt. And, and it, it worked. And you did it. You succeeded in the highest way. Out so there. that's why it's hard for me to forget about Nishi in both positive and negative ways because I see the things that came out of it and they actually all work. The ideas all work. So I don't know why. I know why it didn't work, but I don't know if I can like let myself off the hook. But this is the obsessiveness that artists, great artists have. And this is the obsessiveness that makes you have actual fans, not just people who like your restaurants, not, but you have people who are fans because they know that the level of obsessiveness is legit. They know it comes from somewhere deep inside of you that you can't even fucking control it. And it's why you demand our attention. And, and it's not any different than what Paul Thomas Anderson or Quentin or Nicole Holof Center or what Dave and I try to do, which is put every single thing we have into creating something that somehow demands you take a look because you know that these people aren't just using their facility. They're not just using their talent. They're using every single part of themselves the best that they can 
to deliver to you something. But don't you want to just mail it in sometimes? But we can't, right? We're not made. Of course, also, dude, over a long career, we've all had moments where the project wasn't as good as we'd hoped it would be. And it's so painful, like being in a room with people watching something that I couldn't be entirely proud of. Now, we've made 48 episodes of the show. There's like one of those episodes that no matter how hard I fought, Dave and I both fought together on the same side, trying to get it right. It never got to the level we wanted. People loved it, but I like I knew it was shit and it drove me. It still drove. I would go, if I could go right now and remake that episode, I'd remake the episode just for myself. And so I know the feeling of it falling short and it's such a painful feeling that it's worth turning myself inside out to make the thing as great as it can be. The other part that's hard, as you know, is sometimes you just have to churn and churn and churn until the, the right idea shows up to but, fix the thing, but it to only get there. Ha- but you only get there by fucking it up. And that's a stupid, I hate it. It's the worst. But I mean, I'll write a first draft sometimes of an episode and I'll, I have to, and I'll write the draft and it's still not. And then, you know, it's only three days before we're going to shoot the episode that finally Dave and I look at each other like, oh my fucking God, we got to cut those 20 pages out. And we, this is the nine pages that needs to go here. And this is the story that needs to happen and call the costume person and cancel that location and go to this place. And you, you're like, why couldn't I have been smarter two weeks ago? Why couldn't I? F-? And, but unfortunately, the only way to do it is to keep asking yourself, is it good enough? Is it good enough? Is it good enough now? No. Is it good enough now? No. You know, and you got to keep doing that, man, while you're producing work. Before Billions. Yes, sir. And I remember like this happened maybe like six or seven episodes into season one when people were just like, have you seen this fucking show? Yeah. And I was so happy for you because you were just like soaking it all in. And I could tell that it was a, it was like a career defining moment for you and Dave. Yes. Yes. Because you were like, you almost felt like your careers were on the line maybe, right? I did feel that way. I felt that way for sure. Um, Because we'd had a big failure. We Two things happened. One, we'd written Runner Runner. The movie sucked. We were on set. We couldn't fix it. We knew it was going to suck. So we had like six, eight months where this movie was going to come out. We knew it was terrible. And we were walking, you know, you're just walking around knowing, oh, then, you know, at a certain point in six months from now, I'm going to have a month of just getting shit on every day by everybody. I can't even defend it because I know it sucks. I'd have to go to some premiere, wear a suit, be interviewed. I told everyone I can't give interviews to press that I know and like. I'll say a bunch of stuff. I won't tell anyone they have to go see it. I won't tell anyone it's good. I'll just like do my job of showing up. So there was that. And then we were supposed to work on the show that became vinyl. And we got hired to do it. And then we got fired before we ever wrote anything. But it was very public within our business. And an agent said to us around that time, you guys are pretty much unhirable. And this is after like, you know, 18 years of, ton- of you know, everything from Rounders to Ocean's 13 to The Illusionist to Runaway Jury, a lot of successful things. And this sense that I remember having a conversation with Amy, like maybe we're going to have to sell our apartment. And- you know, that's a really heavy thing to have to think about. Like, well, maybe we're going to have to, because David and I also were unwilling to try to just be like rewrite guys writing Hollywood movies for money because that made us feel dead inside. 
So it was like, hey, um, if we can't figure out the way to do this right, we may have to downsize our lives. And she's always been like right there. I mean, she's an artist and, you know, she's a novelist and film. She was like, yes, well, we'll figure this out together. But I was so sad and angry at where we'd found ourselves and this agent who said, you guys are basically unhirable, that I knew, well, this could all be over. Am I going to be teaching? Like, what's this going to, what's going to happen? But then by just doing the work, David, and as fucking simple as it sounds, I live on the West side and our office then was on the East side. And I would walk through Central Park every day and just trudging through Central Park as we got the idea for billions and started working on it, Dave and Andrew and me. And as I would go there to work on it, I suddenly started being able to walk a little taller, to walk through the park. I wouldn't quite be trudging. I would walk with a little more pace because as soon as you make progress, as soon as you're starting again, as soon as you're working again, you are, for me anyway, it, it enables me to forget the disappointment, to forget the fear, to forget the sadness. And out of that, we wrote Billions and obviously we're able to change our lives. And so when the show landed in the way that it did, now we're writing season five. It did sort of cement something to Dave and me. You know, we, I remember we looked at each other at some point we were in the editing room on the pilot before we knew if the showtime had picked it up. And we were having this really long and deep conversation as you know, we've been best friends, Dave Levine and I best friends since we're 14, 15 years old. And the question was, has this career been, have we succeeded at this thing we set out to do? And I remember we both thought, and I know that you'll relate to this completely, like by any outward standard, yes. Right. We'd made at least one movie that would like last forever. We'd been able to live our lives, send our kids to school, support ourselves by being artists. We'd made all these movies. We were in the culture, but we looked at each other and we were like, we don't have like the capper. Like, no. The answer, if we're being honest, have we fully put our potential on screen long enough and in the way we want to? Like, have we really made the mark we want? And we both looked at each other and said, no, this show has to do that. This show has to be the thing that does that. And, and you know, I, I didn't even mention like Solitary Man, which is the movie we had just made, was on everybody's top 10 of the year list and is a really great movie and something we're super proud of with Michael Douglas. And you could say we'd succeeded, but we knew we had this other gear that we could get to. And so when the show hit in the culture the way that it did, we were able to look at each other and say, well, now you can look at, now you can look at this body of work and it all connects through the prism of billions. And now it's, it's clear that these two guys, this is what they do. This, you can now see what the thing is that we do. You can draw a line from rounders through solitary man and oceans 13 to billions and understand why we did what we did and, and what we did. And and so, yes, what you picked up on, I mean, I remember I put some sauce, we put some sauce in the first season of the show. And when you started binging the show, you sent me a, a text. And when I got that text from you, it meant a lot because I knew you, you're not someone who would just send a note saying, hey, this is great. But you were like, I love the show. The some sauce is great, but fuck that. I'm so happy that the show is so good. And I remember getting that from you and feeling like, well, if Dave sees this, like it's happened, you know, it's happening now. I couldn't watch it fast enough. That's uh, so great. And it was funny. With you just telling me that, I felt like it was the... Because I just watched the last... Uh, out. I always seem to catch the last 35 minutes of Rounders right before it's you guys so play KGB. 
And I was like, oh shit, this is the moment. You you were like, we can play with Johnny Chan. Oh yeah. <laughs> you guys, you and Dave were like, no, we can do this. Yeah, no, it's true. It's never going to feel right. Like Matt, Mikey should have just walked away. He couldn't do it. No, he couldn't do it. You have to take the shot. Well, you got to take the shot. You got to take the shot. No, you got to take the shot. You got to. Uh. If you haven't watched Rounders, stop listening and fucking watch the goddamn movie well, yeah. at least five times. <laughs> Go watch Rounders. But uh, yeah, I mean, of course, that movie's about somebody who has the typical life laid out in front of him and instead chooses to chase a crazy dream. I love that movie so much. You have no, I mean, everyone loves it. Thank you. But like that scene, you were just telling, I was like, well, this is actually, I have my shot. I took down Johnny Chan. No, you got to take your shot, man. And, and you got to chase, I'd say, and we can, I, I would say this. Everybody will tell you, oh, chase your dream. And then there's a big movement of people saying, well, telling people to chase their dream is dumb. Nobody can. Here, here's what people leave out. Chase your dream, but chase it with incredible rigor and commitment. So. Yes, you can dream big, but then figure out how hard you can work, how specifically you can work to make that dream a reality. Because everybody would love to live their dream, but the people who get to, and you know, we could have a 10-minute or an hour-long conversation about privilege, about why certain people feel the right to. But the truth is, for getting everything that's stacked against you to achieve it, the only thing you can control is how hard and how smart you work to realize it. And that's really the conversation Dave and I were having about success, which is, are we willing to do what it takes to put everything we have into something one more time, even knowing the heartbreak, even knowing the pain of failure, to try one more time to succeed? And we looked at each other and said, yes. Amazing. I, you know, I, I, the way I, I, when you say something like that, or I think about it, or I hear someone else say something similar to people that I, I admire tremendously, because obviously I love gambling too. It's like when you realize like, wait, I just lost like 25 hands, <laughs> but I'm still playing with house money. Let's, let's go. Let's go. You're still up. It's true. And that's, you know, I walk into here in this place and see how hard you're going for it. And uh, you're still playing with house money too. I literally used that line last night. They're like, why are you doing this? I was like, you know what? Yeah, I got all this. Me- now that I can do all this media stuff, it's great. You know what that makes me see- feel like? Momofuku is house money now. Let's fucking go. Let's br- let's go till it breaks. Because it's your legacy. It is. I, your- I don't. You don't die with that. I don't care. I, honestly, I just want to make it great, and I want to make sure that we can make things better for our employee. I genuinely believe that, and we can grow and do epic shit. Let me ask you this question: Is the kitchen still open? Yeah. We're here? Yeah. Yeah, we're eating there. We're eating here. I'm fucking starving. Yeah, let's go eat. Let's eat. It's time, isn't it? It's time to go. Dude, I love you. I'm so happy to be here and be on your podcast. And uh, man, it's so nice to know, like, especially now, just to know somebody for like a long, you know what I mean? It's a good thing. It's a great thing. I'll finish it on this. You know, the kind of person that Brian is, and I don't get to talk to him that much, but we don't have to because of the relationship we have. And a lot of people gave me some wonderful, wonderful gifts for the birth of my son. Uh, not my birth. Grace gave birth. I always have to remind myself. He gave me the coolest gift, baseball glove. Yeah. For both of you. Yeah. Baseball glove for you, baseball glove for him. And I won't say more than that, but I was like, that was probably the coolest gift. So thank you for that. I'm so happy. All I'll say, like I said to you, 
your kid wants to have a catch, the answer is always yes. That's basically, yeah, that was the letter. Yeah. All right, man. Thanks, Dave. Well, that was my conversation with Brian. I know he's like knee deep in filming the new season of Billions. Couldn't be happier for him. And in so many ways, I'm not sure if Momofuku is here today or successful without his word of mouth. The the fact that he was such a fan of what we were doing in 2004 had a tremendous impact. So uh, it's something I'll never forget. And he's a tremendous friend. And check out everything he's done. Very excited for Billions. Um, wanted to get to an Ask Dave at MajorDomoMedia.com question. Keep on sending them in. The first question is Derek Botherow. I'm not sure I pronounced that right. Apologies. Derek asks, I'm a new parent like you, trying to judge work and the kid and getting dinner on the table. What's your favorite non-pasta thing to make in terms of optimal speed to deliciousness ratio? Well, Derek, I've said it before. I've been cooking a lot at home and I rarely actually go out to restaurants which is why I don't know what, exactly what's happening in the food world anymore. Obviously, I follow the news, but I, I'm not getting the opportunity to go out as much as I'd like. So, for instance, that trip to Austin, I just wanted to pack in as much food as possible because it was like being ravenous to see a new, eat new different things. But I cook more at home, and one of the things that's happening is I've never really read anything about home cooking. Probably the only home cooking cookbook I ever read was Tom Colicchio, How to Think Like a Chef which was not really designed for a home cook in a traditional sense, but that was about it. Um, Never really read a home cookbook, which is a weird thing to say. I've only cooked in professional kitchens and I've never cooked at home. I've for many years turned off the stove. So I saved money on gas and the refrigerator was literally just nothing but delivered foods and and drinks. uh, And the oven was almost always used as a storage cabinet. So the past sort of year plus cooking for my wife when she was sort of like food cravings that I wanted to nourish her with. And now with our son, I'm just cooking all kinds of things. And the one thing I've really learned is speed. And the second thing is not making a mess. And thirdly, ease of prep and um, cleaning up. Like, I just don't want to use a lot of equipment. So one of the things I like to do, again, number one is it's got to be quick has to be one pot and has to be easy to sort of prep out, mise en place. The most important thing that home cooks don't do is mise en place. They're not getting organized and they're not thinking about the things that are in their pantry, their freezer, their dry goods. There's everything at your disposal. It's nice to have a mental list where everything's at from the spice rack. So you can actually have the ability to sort of improvise quickly without thinking about it. So for example, the thing that, let me just cut to the chase. The thing, Derek, that I've been cooking the most is boneless chicken thighs. So you pay a little bit more to have it boned out, but I, I just, I, I don't have the time. I'm usually trying to cook things in 30 minutes. Oftentimes, maybe I'll make breakfast. I'll make lunch as well. So, you know, my family can reheat it. And the thing that I can do in the morning or when I stop by to help out around 5.30 every day is microwave. I, so I, I keep a bunch of boneless chicken thighs frozen. I take them out and I put them in a microwave approved jar or a glass bowl. And I just, I cook the shit out of it. Basically I'll pop it in and I'll put it for like eight to 10 minutes uh, uncovered and I'll do other things, right? Then I'll plus out onions and garlic and any kind of green veg or potatoes, whatever the hell is there. 
and um, I'll have my nonstick walk, which I would never, these are things I would never do in one of our restaurants or any kind of restaurant cooking because it's not the kind of fucking cooking you, you know, work to learn how to do. This is about making it as fast as possible. So I'll start to saute the aromatics and, and whatever veg, right? It could be broccoli, sweet potatoes. It's usually one or two things. It could be string beans, any kind of green, any kind of vegetable with a start of, say, olive oil and garlic and start sauteing that down. And then I'll add the chicken, which is already cooked through. And I don't want to have an argument about to use a microwave or not to use a microwave. If you are a listener that thinks that a microwave is bad for you, you should... Uh, Unfollow me and uh, never listen to me ever again because essentially that's like telling me you are a uh, you don't believe the world is round and I can't talk to someone that believes the earth is flat. So if you tell me that the microwave is bad for you, I'm just I can't do it anymore. I don't have the patience. So throw away your cell phone and move off the grid because you're dead to me. So I take the microwave hammered chicken thighs because again, like I like to microwave meats that you're going to cook through anyway. It's not about getting the perfect temp or cuisson or anything like that. It's just, you want it done. And I literally put that juices and everything back into the fucking pan. And then I cut, <laughs> this is just sheer laziness. Then I cut the chicken pieces with the scissors. So there's no cross-contamination at all. Zero. Because I don't want to wash my hands. So that's what I do. And then I season it in a variety of ways. I could take it to the Caribbean. I could take it to Korea. I could take it to basically anywhere in the world with, a, a, with spices, right? I can add Sichuan peppercorns. I can add chili pepper. I can add basil. I can add, I literally can take this to any kind of place in the world that I fancy or merge it with any kind of place in the world that I fancy. And that's easy. And I can do this literally in 10 minutes. <laughs> which sounds fucking insane, but I can make a beautiful chicken dish in 10 minutes. And usually I have a rice cooking all the time because um, I have a rice warmer and I usually make that in the morning when I'm making breakfast. And if I don't, you can have jasmine rice and literally cook it in a microwave as well. It works incredibly well and it's very fast. And I'm not even worried about 30 minutes. Like I literally have 30 minutes to cook dinner so we can eat before we put our sun down get them showered, get them changed. So like you got to cook and eat dinner in basically under 30 minutes for, for, I don't know how much longer, but that's what I do. I try to make as much, much food as possible in 30 minutes and then sort of like wolf it down in 10 minutes and then get our baby to bed. And that's what I do, Derek. I think that if you want to get better at cooking with speed to deliciousness ratio, throw the rule book out the fucking window. Okay, because the recipe I just gave you might sound like complete nonsense. And I can imagine a lot of people sort of in total horror. And I told you to microwave the fucking shit out of some chicken thighs and then cut it with scissors. But you know what? Cross-contamination is a real thing. And I hate cutting chicken on a cutting board and then washing it and then putting the chicken. I mean, the vegetable, it's just too much fucking work. And I promise you, this is fast and you will not know the difference. And I'd argue maybe even more delicious than a traditional sort of chicken stir fry. So that's my hack ass, dark arts, chicken thigh microwave recipe. You heard it here first. Anyway, thank you guys. Please give us five stars. However, you rate this podcast, Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, stay tuned next week. Oh, I just found out too, this crazy number. Thank you guys for all of your support. I've been told... 
between all of our podcasts, wherever you listen to this, we just surpassed the 15 million download mark of all the episodes of everything. And this started out literally just talking to Bill Simmons about Major Domo. Never thought that this was going to turn into a real podcast. And uh, appreciate all of your support as we all get better at this. And I learned to be a better listener and an interviewer. But truly, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for all the support. And we'll get better at this. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.